0: Welcome to the Sacred Flame Podcast, I'm your host, Matthias Nordvik. Here, gathered around the fire, we explore our ancestral story worlds. Some call them myths and mythology, but I think they're much more than that. Our ancient stories are the foundation narratives that can help guide us in life, reinvigorate the modern world, and bring us back to a place of balance. Modern society needs an archaic revival, a new force that's sourced from the old forgotten knowledge that was once transmitted in living stories in sacred settings. We gather by the sacred flame and revive the old ways of creating community in the world by listening to nature, our inner flame, and reestablishing the ties that let us realize that we're connected with everything that exists. Our ancestors knew that cultivating the right relationships with the other than human beings in the world is the key to living a good life. In this podcast I'm retelling and reconnecting this Nordic story world with our reality and offering my thoughts on how you can use these stories to reflect on what it means to exist in the modern world. As the brilliant bohemian composer Gustav Mahler once said, Tradition is nurturing the flame, not worshipping the ashes. Thank you for tuning in. Before I begin this episode, I need to comment on some of the content. I'll be telling the story known as Skitnia's Journey, in which Frere's servant Skitnia approaches the female spirit-gatherer to make her have sex with Frér. Many of you who are listening to this podcast have probably heard a version of this story where Frér wants to marry Gerðr and Scythnia is sent to woo her. For instance, if you read Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. The marriage theme is a toned down modern filter on this story. In the original version, there's no mention of Marriage. Frere wants to, well, embrace together. And this is what prompts me to warn you as listeners to this episode. The original version of Skidney's journey is a story about how one man threatens and coerces a woman in order to make her have sex with another man. So if you're a person who has been traumatized by similar experiences, And if you're not comfortable with such themes, I would like to forewarn you that a few moments of this episode may trigger unwanted emotions. Most of this episode does not, however, deal with those themes. And I do believe that if you choose to continue listening, you'll be pleasantly surprised by the direction I'm taking today's subject in. And now, on to the story. One morning, Freyr climbed the sides of Hlidsgálvar. Some call Hlidsgálvar Odin's throne, but to me it's a huge mountain. And from the top of it Freyr could see all over the world. And when his eyes fell on the outlands, he saw a beautiful woman walking from a farmhouse to a barn. When she raised her arms to open the barn door, it was as if all light shone from them. Frere felt a sting in his heart, and suddenly he couldn't think of anything but her. He went home and laid down in his bed. Soon after, his father and mother, Njöðr and Skadi, began to wonder why the youngling didn't get out of bed, why he didn't eat, and why he didn't meet with his friends. Then Skadi sent Skiðnir, Frere's friend, to talk to him. Skiðnir said Frere, my friend, why are you moping like that? What causes you such distress? Oh, my friend, I am so taken, so smitten with this woman that I saw in the outlands. I can't stop thinking about her. I don't know what to do. The sun shines and warms my skin, but I feel no joy from it because of this woman. Now, who is this woman, and where does she live? Her name is Gerder. And she lives on her farm, father, Gemius' farm, beyond the mountains, beyond the dark valleys. But neither the first spirits nor the second spirits, the Icy and the Alvar, want us to be together. Frere, my friend, we grew up together. We've seen so much together. I'll happily help you meet this woman. Thank you, my friend Skitnir. Now let me gift you my sword, which fights on its own. And here is my steed, the fastest runner in the land. And then Scythnir went to talk to the steed in the stable, and he said, It's dark outside, and time for us to travel over foggy fields and treacherous mountains, to the homes of the Thursa. Run, run as fast as you can, lest the great Jötun gets us. And Scythnir rode to Jötunheimar, the outlands, and came to Gemir's farm. There were ferocious dogs guarding the gate, so he approached a shepherd, who was sitting on a mound not far from there. He asked the herder, "'Tell me, my friend, how can I approach the beautiful woman, Gether, who lives on Kimia's farm?' And the herder replies, "'Do you seek death, or are you already a ghoul?' "'You will never approach Gether, Kimia's daughter,' and Scythnia said, "'There are worse things than dying.' My age was measured for just one day. And while Skidney and the herder were arguing, Gather heard the commotion outside and asked her maid, what is that ruckus outside? The earth is trembling and the walls are shaking from the noise. And the maid answers, a man is outside. He stepped down from his horse and he's letting it bite our grass. And she said, let him come in and serve him a drink although I fear that he may be my brother's killer. When Skidnia came in, he respectfully took his place in the hall and Gerda said to him, Who are you, man? Are you of the Aesir or the Alvar or the wise Vanir? You have journeyed through raging flames to come here. Why have you come to our halls? And Skidnia said, I am neither of the Aesir or the elves or the wise Vanir. "'even though I've crossed the burning flames to come to your halls. "'I bring you eleven golden apples as payment, "'if you will go meet Freyr. "'And she responded, "'Never will I take eleven golden apples for meeting with any man, "'least of all, Freyr. "'And Skeetney said, "'I'll give you this ring which was burnt with Odin's young son. "'It drips another eight golden rings every ninth night.' "'And then she said, I'll never take that ring that was burnt with Odin's young son from meeting with any man, and least of all, frere. After that, Skidnia said, Do you see this sword that I'm holding in my hand? I'll chop off your head if you don't do what I ask. And to that she said, Oh, please, little man, I don't respond to threats from bros. Although I think that if Gimius saw you waving that thing around, he might whip his out too. And this is the point in the story where Skietnia then mustered all his toxic traits and said, Listen, lady, look at this blade, it's shiny and sharp, and I'll kill that old Jørhtun, your father, will meet his end. I'll tame you, woman, with this taming wand, and tame you I shall. You'll do my bidding or else go where no being will ever see you again. You will sit on an eagle's mound, peering out of the world, looking toward hell. No food will ever taste good to you. You will turn ugly and despicable. Everyone will look and laugh at you. Hrymnia will stare at you. All the world's beings will stare at you. You'll turn your hanging jaw toward the gate of hell. You'll stumble and tumble, howl and suffer horniness. You'll suffer sorrow and sadness. Sit down and I'll tell you how you'll suffer horrors in hell, the underworld. Every day you'll limp to the halls of the frost demons, malnourished, without joy, living with a three-headed ogre, without a man and horny as hell day in, day out. I went to the woods and I got this wand to use against you. Ordin is angry, Frere is annoyed and you'll suffer the wrath of all the spirits. Listen to me, every demon. Listen, all frost demons. Suttung's sons and all the friends of the Aesir. How I forbid, how I suspend this woman's enjoyment of men, this woman's pleasure from men. Hrimkrimnir is the demon who will have you locked behind the gates of hell, down below the roots of the tree, where the sons of sorrow will serve you goat piss as drinks. You'll never taste a better drink, woman. I make this your will according to my will. I carve Thurs for you and three other runes, Ergi, Eidi, and Orthola. That which I've carved I can scrape off, all in accordance with what I need. As Scyrdnir said all this, Gather realized that his spell would work, so she responded by saying, well, come." In my home, young friend, take this goblet and drink the sweet mead. Never had I thought I'd love one of the second spirits, but here we are. And then Skiatnia said, Before I leave, I'll need to know when you'll meet with Freyr and embrace him. And she said, There's a grove called Parry. I'll meet Freyr there in nine nights and embrace him. And then Skiatnia rode home. He came back to Frere in the evening and said, Frere, my friend, gather we'll meet you in the grove called Parry in nine nights. And Frere, the crybaby, said this, Oh, one night is so long. Two are even longer. How will I last even three? These days a month seems shorter than just one of these nights of longing. <laughs> okay. Now, I want to start off this episode by reminding all you fair listeners that while I stick to the storyline and I'm generally close to the way that each of the stories I pick uh, have been written, um, I do embellish a little bit and tweak the storyline to fit my personal perspective. Now, if you're now thinking that this devalues the credibility of my retelling of the nordic story world i would like to remind you of three important aspects of the nordic stories one if you're not fluent in old norse and other ancient languages from northern europe you'll never have direct access to the essence of the words that were written in the medieval period every translation regardless of which language it's in even in modern icelandic will be somewhat different from the original. And if you're not deeply entrenched in the poetic culture of Viking Asia, medieval Scandinavia, and the North Atlantic, there's no way that you'll be able to fully understand the extent to which the ancient poets made use of polysemantic vocabulary and circumlocutions. Polysemantic means that something can be understood in multiple ways, and circumlocutions is a fancy word for talking about something without directly stating what that something is. An example of that uh, would be the Kendingar that the Skulls made in their poetry. Now, I'm not saying these things to knock you for not having the same knowledge as me and other scholars. I'm saying this to remind you that literalism is really problematic. Literalism is this tendency we we often have to demand that each word in a written text should be taken literal and considered eternal, stable, carved in stone, even if it were written on paper. And this brings me to the second important aspect of the Nordic stories. Literalism is a phenomenon that primarily exists with two texts, the Bible and the Quran. And I want to also point out that it's far from everyone who's Christian or Muslim who actually accepts literalism, the literal interpretation of their holy texts. Literalism is a thing that's usually used by fundamentalists to argue for their position. And usually, this position is actually not at all aligned with the letters in the text. It always comes from a specific interpretation of the text, because it's a fundamentally flawed perspective on any text to assume that it would only express express a single streamlined idea especially when we're dealing with texts that have deep histories, like the Bible and the Quran, and Both these collections of texts have evolved over centuries, and there wasn't a single moment in history where they were completely and definitively defined. Cultural texts are fluid, and this is also the case with the texts that now contain the bulk of the Nordic story worlds. The Etic poems and Snorri's Etta are cultural texts. Now, even if Snare Sturluson in 1220, when he wrote Edda, intended for his text to be fully done and finished and set in stone, I say that ironically, of course, he would have known that any scribe who copied his text after he had written it would to some degree add their own touch. If nothing else, in the form of a scribal error. And we know they did because there's several copies of Snorri's Etta and Snorri's original from 1220 doesn't even exist. So there, the third reason that you shouldn't fret too much about me adding my own touch to the stories uh, is that these stories were never intended to have one single form. Keep in mind that they existed in oral form before they were written down for centuries. And this means that nobody ever expected them to stay completely the same from the moment they were created. It's simply naive to think that. And the old storytellers also knew that. Again, we come back to literalism. That didn't exist in oral cultures. What existed instead of a sense of literalism that was assumed to be commensurate with the truth was a basic expectation that a story and an elder's perspective would be in line with tradition. That means that it was not only allowed to add your personal touch, it was expected that you did. The reason for that is that before literalism became the way Westerners think about the world, which really isn't that long ago, people knew that situations, performances, lives, worlds, and locations changed and a story needed to adapt to these changes and that is why when someone tells a story in the old icelandic sagas you will often read that the saga writer interpolates a comment like quote and people thought that he told the story better than it had ever been told before end quote that's the medieval mind's recognition of the fluid narrative, and it's a slight nod in the medieval Nordic literature to the old tradition of having elders, a tradition that was losing ground to bureaucracy when the sagas were written down. You see, what we have left in the old Icelandic literature and a few other texts from Northern Europe is the memory of our native cultures before they were taken over by state bureaucrats, aristocrats, kings, bishops, and other power hoarders. The Nordic story tradition has lost its elders to books, but that doesn't mean it didn't once live a vibrant life. And it doesn't mean that we can't get our elders back. It just takes time and diligence Any tradition that still has elders understands that there is no single truth out there. Everything is an interpretation. What gives credibility to an interpreter, an elder, who is expressing their moment in the long line of tradition is experience, hard earned experience. And that's why it's called an elder. And this is where I'll need to give a shout out to someone I believe has the potential to become an elder in their own tradition. The person I'm talking about is an Irish guy who goes by the uh, name, the blind boy, and he has a podcast called the blind boy podcast that I can strongly recommend. He's a great storyteller and a researcher of Irish culture. And the reason I'm giving him a shout out is that I was directed to his podcast by a friend. And as soon as I saw an episode called horse skulls and witches piss, I was hooked i've been a fervent listener to the the blind boy podcast since then and very recently he released an episode called mental health biodiversity and mythology and as i was listening to that episode it struck me just how similar this guy's thinking is to my own he even used some examples and references to things in the world that i habitually talk about both on this podcast and just you know, in general so this is a shout out to the blind boy storyteller who has inspired several elements of this episode of the sacred flame podcast. And in line with the ancient storytelling traditions, I'm incorporating stuff I've heard from this other storyteller to tell similar tales of how we can change our ways of living and inspire new storytellers to tell their versions, hoping that one day we'll regain our traditions of having elders with sacred knowledge. Not gurus or prophets who claim to be the OGs so that they can monopolize wisdom instead of sharing it. As opposed to a guru or prophet, an elder is someone who gains their legitimacy from having walked on the land and with the land with life and existence for a lifetime. A significantly long enough period in which they've cultivated connections that enable them to understand things that the younger ones cannot fully grasp yet. The elders, the storytellers, gain their legitimacy by standing on the shoulders of a long tradition of storytelling and by absorbing the fluctuations of that tradition as it evolves with time. The guru and the prophet are concerned with literalism. They're concerned with interpretations that seek the truth, come closer to God, and all of that. They're managers of words. They're spiritual bureaucrats. They claim that there is one truth out there, which has been set in stone and will never change, regardless of how the world and humans evolve. They purposefully set up and maintain hierarchies that set them apart from you, the novice, the learner, who, in their minds, will never come as close to God as they are because, well, (laughs) they claim they carry the inner fire, the light that has been bestowed upon them and only them by some unseen entity that everyone must recognize as the supreme authority. They do that, combine a set truth that they just came up with, with a vengeful God that they just invented so that you'll do what they say, pay attention to what they do, not what you need to do and what is right in front of you. That's the contract of the city-state, the empire, the colonial regime, global capitalism, and not least the modern factory farm. Now in Sand Talk, Tyson Yonkapurta says that the invention of a god that requires a contract came along when certain humans built civilizations. And his idea of civilization is not a positive one. He argues that civilization is an entropic system. Now, in physics, entropy is a thermodynamic quantity representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conversion into mechanical work. In other words, if a civilization is entropic, and Tyson argues they really all are. It needs energy from the outside to function. It's never a closed system. And I think he's right. The early city-states couldn't exist without cultivated areas outside that uh, transported food to them. They couldn't maintain the living standards without importing food, water, goods, riches, and surplus. And so they began colonizing the world around them, making local populations work for them instead of for themselves. And then they took their stuff. And that's an entropic system. An entropic system needs a vengeful God who claims to know the truth about the world, who has a prophet or guru who represents them in this world so that you'll give that God and its representatives a portion of whatever you produce. Tithes. And this is where I return to the story about Frere and Gerder. So I tweet the story a little bit. I made Gerder sound a little more like a modern woman with agency. And I made Frere sound a little more like a whiny little boy. And I made Skidnia sound a little bit more like a bro, but no less brutal and unpleasant than what you can find out there among the entitled crowd of man-children who expect that women exist for them. I've otherwise not really changed much in the basic narrative. Frere wants a woman and feels entitled to her. Scythnia does Frere's bidding and he acts entitled, coercive, threatening. The story can be interpreted in many different ways. Again, another aspect of preliterate narratives. It has a lot to tell us about male perspectives on me- women in the medieval and possibly Viking period. It has a lot to tell us about so-called love magic, or rather an aphrodisiac magic, magic that serves the purpose of taking away sexual capacities and fertility. It also has a lot to tell us about ideas circulating in Iceland and the North Atlantic about in-groups, the first spirits, and out-groups, the third spirits, or jachtnar. Very little of that paints a positive picture of ancient Nordic culture from the modern perspective. And I don't intend to make excuses for that. In the Viking Age and the medieval period, the Nordic world seems to have been a generally patriarchal and brutal world. Not a great place to be a woman, not a great place to be an outsider to the established family-based order. Now, personally, I think that's because the native systems of caring for and maintaining land-based life and connections had begun eroding already before the Viking Age. In the 500s CE, at least. People had begun building entropic systems in Scandinavia in the middle of the first millennium, thanks primarily to the influence from Rome. Social and societal structures had begun shifting from what we could call tribal structures toward local hegemonic patriarchies with a single male ruler and his little top down hierarchical state. We can see that in the place name material. In southern Scandinavia, men have given names to places they inherited from their fathers in the century around 500 CE. Small and tropic estates that sucked up taxes from the surrounding areas. In scholarship, we call these locations magnate farms. There were farms with marketplaces, iron production, alcohol production, temples, and spaces for a retinue of warriors who probably swore allegiance to that petty king or whatever he considered himself, who told people that he had the right to rule there because he descended from the mythical first guy who said he owned the land. Now eventually those places became centers of law and order, bureaucracy, the tools to keep the colonized surrounding areas in check so that they would continue to pay taxes and submit to the center. And this is where another possible understanding of the story about Frère and Géder comes into play. Farming. Now, This isn't just the practice of farming in a technological sense. It's everything that comes with farming in terms of culture, thoughts, ideas, and concepts. In the case of Skidnia's Journey, it's all about an elite perspective. So we'll stay in those little entropic magnate farm spaces that I just described. Now, early interpretations of the story about how Skytnia coerces Gerðr to intercourse with Frér explain it as a story about how Frér, the force of fertility in the world, directs Scythnia, the sun's rays, to make Gerder a field, arable. There's a reason to that. Frér is in charge of fertility, both human and non-human. Skidnia's name means shining, and in the story, there are several references to how he's only moving in daytime, even that his lifespan is only one day. That could suggest references to the sun's movement across the sky in one day, essentially, and Gather's name means enclosure. It refers to the type of enclosures that were made in Scandinavia to grow crops and keep pasture animals in certain fields. In the Icelandic legal system and in their cultural conceptions of houses and fields, the word gardr applied to a wide range of classifications. A farm was defined by its gardr, the enclosure that was built around all the cultivated fields and the houses. Everything inside the garter was called innangars, while everything outside was called utangars. Literally inside defense and outside defense. In the legal system, if someone was accused of committing a crime, it had important implications if that crime had occurred innangars or utangars. And some actions would be offenses if they occurred in Nangars, but not if they occurred Utangars. The farms were organized with inner houses and outer houses. Barns, shieldings, stables, and so on would be the outer houses, while living quarters would be the inner houses. And conceptually, the landscape would also be classified by this model. Inhabited spaces would be quote unquote, inside, while uninhabited spaces would be considered outside. And people imagined that different things of the supernatural kind could and would happen, depending on whether they occurred in the conceptual inside or outside mountains, heaths, lava fields, marshes, glaciers, and forests, to the extent that they existed in Iceland would be conceptually outside belonging to the uncultivated, distant and dangerous. And that's where the outlaws would go. In the same way, Iceland would be considered the inside, the safe space, while the world out there would be the outside, the dangerous space. The Danish scholar Kirsten Hestrup has described this system in the book Island of Anthropology from 1990. Hestrup compared this legal and conceptual system lifted from the saga literature and the medieval Icelandic law code Graukaus, to Snorri's descriptions of the cosmos in Etta. She claimed that the cosmos in the Nordic story world corresponded directly to this conceptual layout, and she used Snorri's version of the creation story and the story about Thor's journey to Utgardr to substantiate her claims. Now, the problem with this rendering of the Nordic story world is that Snorri based his cosmic model in the story about Thor's journey to Utgader on medieval cartography. The standard way of representing the world in medieval cartography was to draw a circle with the T inside it. The T divided Asia, the top, from Africa on the bottom right and Europe on the bottom left. The vertical line in the T was the Uh, Mediterranean and the horizontal line represented the river Tanais that separated Europe from Asia and the Arabian Sea that separated Africa from Asia. Usually there'd be a dot in the middle of this map, which represented Jerusalem. So what we should understand from all of this is that we can't really trust this representation of the Nordic worldview. It's based on ideological medieval Christian maps. The Nordic worldview was arguably more complicated than that. But it does seem that most Scandinavians thought of their world as a system of locations inside and outside safe and unsafe areas, like so many other humans have done on this planet in general. However, it's very likely that they had different opinions about what areas were safe and what areas were unsafe. And I think I should clarify what it means to call them safe too. We're talking about safe in the sense of spiritually and physically safe, safe from harm from other humans and safe from harm from other non-humans. And more importantly, though, safe in this sense means safe to use in fields that are safe for you to use because you own them. And that's the system that was founded in the 500s and kept expanding until this day. In the 500s, we see these magnate farms gobbling up land around them. In the 700s, we can see that these magnates have established hunting parks, copying the Frankish aristocracy's tendency to monopolize hunting. In the 900s, States have formed in Scandinavia, and there are kings with distinct dynastic identities who claim that they and their family have always ruled over these lands. And this is where it gets interesting because what is it that happens between 700 and 900? Well, we see massive migrations out of Scandinavia. We've all heard the story about how Iceland was settled by Norwegian farmers who left because they were displeased with Haraldr Feinhair's attempt to unify Norway. I'm sure that even though this version of the story about how Iceland was settled is only a part of the reality behind the North Atlantic migrations, it's certainly a true part of it. But what do we otherwise see? We see thousands of Scandinavians settling in the British Isles to the extent that the English had to declare half of their country, quote, the Dane law, end quote, a designated area for Nordic migrant settlements. It looks to me like some of those migrants probably left Scandinavia because they were unhappy with how the elite was appropriating more and more land. Two things seem to have been happening simultaneously in this period. One, the Scandinavian elite, behaved like freder and demanded more gather the enclosed lands and i guess that makes Skidney their tax collector or something and two the population seems to have been growing exponentially at this time as well and that's probably because entropic systems are good at expanding the human population they're good at creating more human resources by importing more food such a system becomes capable of feeding more people, which in turn ensures that more children survive the early child years. Adding to that, there are also crucial technological advances in this period. In the 500s, people would have been using an ard plow in their fields. That's also called a scratch plow because it isn't particularly heavy and it doesn't allow for deep cut in the soil. On the plus side of the things, this allows one farmer with two horses or two oxen to handle it. On the downside of it all, it means that the plow doesn't allow for efficient use of the land. And sometime in the period between 700 and 1100, another type of plow is introduced in northern Europe, the karuka plow. The heavy iron blade attached on this plow required no less than eight oxen to, be, to pull it, and unlike the art, it had wheels as well. It was invented in China in the 1st century CE, and it may have been used by some Slavic populations in Europe as early as the 500s. We know that it was in use in the middle of the 600s in the Po Valley in Italy, and based on the vocabulary in Lex Alemannorum, the law of the Germanic tribe, the Alemanni in southwestern Germany, it must have been present there in the 720s. It seems to have been introduced into England with Scandinavian migrations in the 800s, maybe Scandinavians bringing it over there by way of Flanders in Belgium. And finally, the wheel plough entered the southern Scandinavian area, at least in the thousands. And this corresponds well with a new type of place names that emerge in Scandinavia in this period. These place names are the ones that end with the suffix, the suffix Thorper. A Thorper in Viking Age Scandinavia was a newly settled outlier farm, an enclosure of the outfields, the outlands. The reason that these places crop up in the thousands is that he- the heavy wheel plows allow for cultivation of heavier and denser packed soils, like those on the eastern Danish landscape which consist of hard-packed clay. During the Pleistocene, the northern hemispheric ice cap moved back and forth across the southern Scandinavian landscape. And this movement lays, uh, left glacial fluvial moraine landscapes in the western parts of Denmark and hard-packed clay in the eastern parts of Denmark. And the early ard plough didn't do well in that clay, but the wheel plough could manage it. With the three-field rotation system that alternated between different crops and fallows and manure as fertilizer, of course the southern Scandinavian farmlands became more productive in the late Viking period. A healthy, well-managed field rotation system in Viking Age and medieval Scandinavia saw crops like rye, oats, millet, flax, wheat, and barley. The livestock that people kept included cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, horses, chickens, ducks, and geese. A typical farming community in the Viking Age in mainland Scandinavia would consist of a small cluster of farmhouses surrounded by cultivated fields. Now, Outside the cultivated fields, you'd find the commons, an area used by the entire community for grazing livestock and collecting winter feed. There would also be forests and meadows surrounding the inhabited spaces, which were used for a variety of resources. Apples and a few kinds of nut trees could also be kept in a grove or in the private farm enclosures, and there would be apiaries to supply people with the only available kind of sweetener, honey. Fishing was, of course, also part of the economy. People would catch a wide range of fish like salmon, trout, herring, place, and cod, just to name a few. And in the late Viking age, hops was introduced in Scandinavia. And this idyllic little picture of a medieval village, of course, looked differently in Iceland and the northern parts of Scandinavia, where you'd only find single farms with a more modest selection of crops, livestock and such. This way of managing farm life was a nice little ecosystem where all the components came nicely together to support growth, fertility and happiness. It's what Tyson Jonkaporter calls a society that knows how to handle its own waste. And this was certainly on people's minds back then. If you dive into the famous old Icelandic saga about Prennjö you'll run into a curious insult directed at Njall and his sons. Njall and his sons are incapable of growing full strong beards. They're also diligent farmers who make use of manure to fertilize the fields. And at one point someone says, and I forget who it is, that Njál and his kids should try smearing manure on their cheeks to make their beards grow. And this earns them the nickname manure beardlings. What we can learn from that is that medieval Icelanders had a perfect understanding of the cost and effect of fertilizing their fields. Not least a rather lame sense of humor, I guess. They knew how to handle their own waste. And so did the other scandinavians now something happens with farming in europe between the imperial roman days and medieval feudalism in the imperial roman period farming was more entropic than in the later feudal period the roman estate economy imported and exported on a large scale The Romans had no problem being dependent on outside resources because they had built a massive colonial network that transported goods, energy, from one end of the empire to the other. That was one of the reasons for their interest in Egypt. It was the breadbasket of the empire. During the height of the imperial network, Egypt produced an estimated 26 million metric tons of grain, which was distributed across the Roman Empire. Now, I know that we're all used to thinking about the Roman Empire as this well-structured society that all of a sudden was invaded by Germanic barbarians and then crumbled. That's actually not really what happened. What happened was that the governmental network that held it all together from officials loyal to Rome, placed as far away as Babylon and Spain, to a military that would respond to that network without hesitation. All of that slowly deteriorated. As central authority became more and more ambiguous in the 300s and 400s, those officials and the soldiers under their command just kind of left certain areas. Eventually, another elite replaced them with their own military structure. So slowly but steadily, the power balance in this vast territory, which at its largest extent stretched farther from East to West than the contiguous United States, just shifted. And with this shift came a decline in the resource sharing networks, trade, if you will, that held all of this together. And this may be the reason that the feudal estates that emerged in the remnants of the northern parts of the Roman Empire in the four, or five, and 600s were focused on self-sufficiency. I'm, of course, talking about Gaul, which at that time had been invaded by the Germanic tribe who called themselves the Franks and had begun speaking Latin rather poorly. Their system of estate economies was based on lordship and serfdom a new interpretation of the Roman patrician client system. The serfs lived on the Lord's land and had to pay him dues. They worked for him, shoveled his manure. And since the trade networks in the Mediterranean had broken down, the Lord had to ensure that he could provide for himself. He didn't care too much about his tenants, of course, the serfs. And if he wanted cool things like Byzantine silk dresses, he'd have to rely on one particular group to facilitate that, the Scandinavians. Because in the 6 to 7 hundreds, it looks like the Scandinavians become key players in new trade networks, which instead of going through the Mediterranean, go through the Baltic Sea, down the Russian river systems, connect with Byzantium and Baghdad through the Black Sea, and lock into the Silk Road trade in the Caspian Sea. That's what enabled the little kings in Denmark, Sweden and Norway to amass more wealth after they had created their little magnate farms. This amassed wealth gave them the ability to pay for loyal troops farther and farther away. That enabled them to manage farms that were across oceans without even being there, just like the Romans. So, when we enter the year 1016, Svein Forkbeard has just died the year before, and his son Knut, who would later be called the Great, had just won the Battle of Assenden and signed a treaty with Edmund Ironside, who was elected king by the English Wheaton. Now, poor Edmund died of mysterious circumstances only weeks later, and in 1017, Knut was crowned king of all of England. Knut's brother Haraldr ruled Denmark, but died the year later and left Knut that land as well. Later on, Knut was victorious against Olavar Haraldson the Holy, so he ended up ruling Norway in 1028. And he might even have had some sway in Sweden too. What he built there was a nice little North Sea empire, a colonial network with Winchester as the metropolitan center. The culmination of the Scandinavian migrations in the Viking age, the culmination of the process of making enclosures and pushing people around that began for the Nordic peoples in Southern Scandinavia in the 500s, inspired by the Franks and their feudal social systems. And if we now return to Freyr, the spirit that commands the fertility of the fields, we should consider that his backstory is that he is the progenitor of the Ingling dynasty, some of Knut's competitors in Norway. Stories have it that Freyr was worshipped in the temple in Uppsala, where he was depicted with a massive um, dingling, a phallus, And he was venerated with such lewd songs that the poor chronicler of the archbishopric of Hamburg Bremen, Adam of Bremen, decided that he didn't need to write them down in his history. We can only guess what kinds of songs they uh, were, but the story Wörstauter might give us an idea. Now, in this story, which is an appendix to the story about how aforementioned Olaver Haraldson the Holy is on the run from Knut the Great, um, Olavr and some of his men come upon a small farm in the far north, where it turns out that the woman of the household worships a horse penis. And this is the typical story in the King's Sagas about some backwards heathens that need to be taught a lesson by a christianizing king we find a lot of those Oliver learns that each evening the household gathers at the fire and passes an embalmed horse penis around and compose poetry in its honor and here are a couple of excerpts from the poem in Wilhelm Heitzmann's translation quote here you can see quite a powerful dong cut off from the stallion's father for you maid this rod is not at all dull between the thighs carry the pencil before the bridesmaids they shall moisten the dong this evening may myrni receive this offering but you farmer's daughter you pull Versi towards you A loaf of bread would be twice as suitable for me, thick and bulging and yet broad, as this rod on work days. May Myrnir receive this offering, but you, maid of the household, you thrust Versi onto yourself. Certainly, I would not be able to resist driving it into myself if we two were lying alone in mutual pleasure." but Mernir received this offering, end quote, and so on. Now, the thing about Freyr is that as a fertility spirit, he seems to be closely connected to horses. We learn this in the Icelandic saga about Hrapkitt Freysgordi. Now, Hrapkitt has a temple and a horse that are dedicated to Freyr, hence his nickname Freysgordi, which means Freyr's priest. I'm not going to go further into details about the sire, but just note that the horse, whose name is Freyfaxi, Freyr's main, is central to the story and ends up being killed in a way that seems reminiscent of horse sacrifices in certain parts of Scandinavia. Now, scholars have, of course, suggested that the horse that Skidni receives from Freyr in Skidni's journey is the mythical version of such existing horses that were once dedicated to Freyr. Since horseback riding was the province of the elite from an early time in Northern Europe, it makes sense that they would be associated with Frere, the spiritual ancestor of the elite dynasty of the Ingling's rulers of Norway and, at times, of Sweden. So when Frere decides to gather in the story about Skidney's journey, he is not just a spirit that gives fertility to the land. He is also a representative of that group of people in society who appropriate land build enclosures, and collect taxes. The Norwegian scholar Grosteinsland has suggested that the idea of a holy marriage between the ruler and the land is the basis for all of this. So when Frer um, wants to embrace, gather, it's symbolically the expression of the ruler's desire to take land. A union between the spirit of fertility and dynastic virility and a jochtun woman representing the land is the expression of royal dominion. This way of thinking about engaging with the land in sexual terms seems to have been widespread in Norway. Between western Akta and Troms, all along the west coast of Norway. There are some 70 phallic stones from the period dating back to the 200s and up to the 600s, at least, that you can still go see in the landscape today. Some are even standing in cemeteries. And there are, of course, also several in Sweden, but to my knowledge, none have been found in Denmark. Now, these phallic stones are usually painted white, and they seem to express the basic idea of the fertility and virility of a powerful spirit who essentially impregnates the land. And to me, this means that from the earliest times, agricultural pursuits in northern Europe have been conceptualized as a kind of sexual relationship. And I think that's also what's expressed in the Icelandic land-taking rituals, where the settlers throw their ancestral pillars overboard and let them drift toward the land. The land is a female entity. Its spirit is Thor's mother Jadr. And by letting your ancestral pillar, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, penetrate it symbolically, you're letting the totemic instrument of your ancestral line copulate and mingle with the land. And that way, you can claim that you come from that new land that you've just settled on. I think that's part of what's going on in Skidne's journey. But the question is, why is it so coercive, bordering violence? And well, this is where feudal patriarchalism has entered the Nordic cultures. The story itself was written down in 1270 two and a half centuries after the Viking Age culminated with Knut's colonial empire in the North Sea. Roughly 100 years later, in 1380, someone in Bergen in Norway carved an incantation in runes, which was meant to cast a similar spell on a woman as the one that Skidnia casts together. The curse goes like this in my translation. I carve runes of penitence, I carve runes of help. Once for the Alvar, twice for the Tretl, thrice for the Thursar, for the harmful shaking Valkyrie, so that she will never, even if she wanted to, hurt your life. I send you, I see you, you get the she-wolf's perversion and unbearable horniness. Have this unbearable horniness and the anger of the Yehtun, you will never sit, you will never sleep. As you may note, this curse follows similar ideas as skidnir's curse on Gather. We're carving runes for different beings and emotions. skidnir calls on the demons, the Thursa. He calls on the elves, he calls on the Jötnar and a selection of other spirits. He carves runes just like this person whom we don't know did. He carves the Thurs rune with, uh, while this person carved runes three times for the Thursar. And then Skidnir carved the three runes, Ei Ergi, Eidi, and Orthola. And these are all words that suggest lust, perverseness, horniness, unbearable hunger for sex, inability to sit still, and so on. They're expressing the same ideas as the rune curse from Bergen. Ultimately, Skidney's curse and this one from Bergen are expressing the same ideas about anaphrodisiac magic, and this means that there is consistency between the central texts of the Nordic story world and real magic that was practiced out there in Scandinavia in the medieval period. And at the heart of this mental universe is what I would classify as an incredibly hostile, appropriative, and entitled male perception of women's role in life. And this is a perspective on women, by extension the soil, because it is conceptualized as female, as objects that must be dominated, taken into possession, and coerced, especially if they assert any will to agency by and for themselves. And I want to stress that we're operating within the frame of mind of the elites and that it is possible that there were other more healthy expressions of male female relationships out there in Scandinavia. And in fact, I know there were, but I'll leave that for another episode and continue down this rabbit hole because it has important implications for how people in the West came to view land and women later on, today even. Now, between the 1st and 13th century, the mentality toward women and things uh, that belong to the conceptual realm of the female, such as land, shifts immensely in Northwestern Europe. I'd argue that the hostile view of women expressed in the Viking Age and Medieval period in Scandinavia is a product of cultural shifts across Western Europe, which begin in the Frankish area. If you're not familiar with the Franks, all I really need to say to give you an idea about what their culture came to be is this. Imagine a knight in shining armor who vanquishes a dragon that keeps a poor, helpless princess captive in a tower the plot of the first Shrek movie. That's elite Frankish culture. The knight in shining armor is the desired image of masculinity, a throbbing virile warrior who saves women. The helpless woman confined to her chamber is the desired image of femininity, and that's what the Franks liked. And it became the theme of their courtly literature, which then spread across Western and Northern Europe in the period between 800 and 1200. The Franks liked their lands like their women, confined in enclosures. So the the cultivated areas were the dominions of men, men who plowed the lands. And no wonder plowing has become a euphemism for sex in the urban dictionary. That's also how the Viking rulers saw their world, and that's what the story about Skiatnia's journey was understood to express. And that's how farming became rape of the land. Now, when a close relative of Knut the Great set sails for England with his army of Franco-Scandinavians in 1066, he was definitely thinking of the English landscape in similar terms as Frere was thinking of Gerder. I'm of course talking about William the Conqueror. Now, Knut died in 1035. And even though he was a very efficient ruler in many ways, he didn't manage to secure a long-lasting dynastic hold over England. His sons, Harald Knut and Haraldr Harefoot, managed to maintain some hold over England and Denmark between 1035 and 1042. But eventually, Harthacnut died in 1042 and left the English throne to Edward the Confessor, a member of the Saxon House of Wessex. Now Edward had been in exile in Normandy, and this left his court open to Norman influence. So when he died on January 5th in 1066 and left the throne to Harold Godwinson, William definitely felt that he had a claim to the throne in Winchester. And back in Scandinavia, Haraldar Haraldi had similar ideas. I'm not going to bore you too much with uh, all the details about why a bunch of dudes in the region between northern France and central Norway all thought that England was the Gerda to their frere. I'll just summarily say that there was a lot of entitlement circulating at the time. And it all ended with William the Bastard becoming William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings, shortly after Harold Godwinson had beaten Haraldi Haraldi. Now what happened next was a wholesale Norman land grab of Anglo-Saxon lands. England was completely rearranged and taken over by a Norman elite. There were a few Anglo-Saxon lords that managed to hold on to their stuff, and there were also some Scandinavian lords here and there, but the general theme was that a new elite had entered the picture, the Franco-Scandinavians, known as Normans. And this is what Liba di Vintonia, also known as the Great Survey, or more popularly, the Domesday Book from 1086, is all about. The Great Survey of England in the 1080s was all about asserting William's dominance over the English lands. In William's refined and modernized feudalism, all lands in the kingdom were the property of the king, and anyone living on them were simply tenants. And this meant that taxes were due from all his subjects and, in principle, that he could dispense over any land that he wanted. And with that, he built a similar entropic system as the Romans and Knut and so many other power hoarders before him where resources were taken from distant locations and directed to the metropolis. This system expanded to Ireland in 1169, when Anglo-Norman mercenaries invaded Leinster at the request of the deposed King Dermot, Dermot McMurray. That led to the signing of the Treaty of Windsor, where the High King Rory O'Connor recognized the English King Henry II as overlord. Over the next eight centuries, British lords expanded their possessions in Ireland, built manors and enclosures, and expelled the indigenous population from their land until the Irish were confined to squalid miniature farms where they were only essentially allowed to grow one crop, potatoes. And this development was so severe that in 1841, roughly half of all homes in Ireland were single-room mud cabins. Now, meanwhile, the British lords were building huge estates with monocultural gardens, green deserts, those areas that some people call nice lawns. Nice lawns with trimmed hedges, rounded bushes, and, of course, imported species from all corners of the empire to showcase their might. That set-up Is the reason that every suburban area today has nice lawns and hoas or city ordinances that demand that you keep your yard in a certain shape think about that for a second when developers across the western world and many other places now break land to build suburban housing they're operating from a blueprint that was created by the english aristocracy a house with a lawn and a white picket fence. What's even more disturbing is that they'll scrape off the topsoil, the fertile humus that enables the existence of plants, insects, amphibians, birds, and rodents. And then they'll sell that to factories that make supplies for plant nurseries, who will then bag it all up as planting soil and sell it back to those people who buy the suburban houses. Meanwhile, the destruction of the topsoil and the monocropping that takes place in these new developments completely destroys the ecosystems, just because people must have nice lawns, in the image of British colonialism. A similar process occurs in industrial farm sites, where machine plowing long ago has destroyed the topsoil and washed out all nutrients in the ground. The result is that farmers have to douse the ground with industrial fertilizer made with phosphate, potash, and ammonium nitrate. By adding sulfuric acid to phosphate concentrate, you get phosphoric acid. Potash can be turned into potassium chloride, and ammonium nitrate is derived from nitrogen from the air and natural gas. All three kinds of industrial fertilizer require factory-level chemical processing to make in large scales, and potash and phosphate are usually extracted by mining. Talk about plowing the earth. What's really disturbing about this is that these compounds would be naturally occurring in the topsoil as a result of decaying organic matter, plants and animals, birds, insects, and of course, manure. Now, in medieval Europe, people knew this. And that's why they used a field rotation system with fallows. What happens when you let one field rest for the duration of at least one and preferably more growth cycles is that it is allowed to regenerate and the topsoil becomes full of nutrients again. But we stopped doing that. Instead, we just Bust out our industrial-grade fertilizer and let excess nitrate wash into the rivers, lakes, estuaries, and saltwater bays, resulting in deoxygenation of our otherwise fertile coastal stretches, which then kills off most marine life and creates perfect conditions for algae, some of which can be poisonous to beach-going humans. To deal with pests, we spray these farmlands with glyphosate and other toxic compounds that cause cancer and infertility in human and other animal populations, because what comes with monocropping is excellent conditions for certain diseases and pests that are specialized in living off the species that are cultivated in our factory farm fields in large quantities. Across Europe in the middle of the 19th century, a certain disease began to spread among the new type of crop that we'd taken from the colonized world in the West, the potato. When that disease hit the already starved and impoverished Irish population, it resulted in the Great Famine. On March 17 in 1846, the first ships left Dublin for New York, carrying famine refugees in droves. More than a million Irish people died from starvation and another million emigrated to the United States in the following decades. Starving Irish were not the only ones expelled from the European soils. After the Normans had colonized England, they had effectively evicted thousands of Anglo-Saxon speaking English from their lands and consigned them to an itinerant lifestyle. Have you ever wondered why there are two words in English for so many food products? Pigs' meat is pork, cows' meat is beef, sheep' meat is mutton, and deer' meat is venison? That's because the words pig, cow, sheep, and deer all have Germanic origin and were in use by the Anglo-Saxon-speaking populations in England prior to the Norman invasion. The Anglo-Saxon language is a variation of West Germanic, when the scandinavians showed up in the early 800s their north germanic language was not far from the anglo-saxon dialects so people could generally communicate with one another despite what you might have heard in like popular tv shows like the vikings and such now for that reason the anglo-saxon dialects especially the eastern and northern ones adopted a huge amount of scandinavian vocabulary it worked because the languages were similar, and there was no land grab involved, which effectively disenfranchised an entire population. Now, what happened when the Normans showed up was by all measures, if you ask me, the first historical expression of a modern-style colonial land grab. Invade, dispossess the existing population, exploit the lands, and redirect the resources to a distant center. And then, They started using their French words for the food extracted from important animals in the English landscape, pork, beef, mutton, and venison. That's not how the Romans did it, but once their reconfigured brand of estate economy had gone through the Frankish machinery and gotten mixed with Scandinavian Viking Age brutality, you can read about that brutality in Dudo of Saint-Quentin's Norman history, it became an effective tool in the hands of Rollo's descendant, William the Conqueror. The name of the game was the monopolization of land. Coercive, aggressive enclosing of lands that previously had been cared for by local land-based communities. The enclosing of lands continued in England and its domain until today. William's land monopoly, asserted through the Doomsday Book, enforced an unforgiving regime of taxes on the populations in his kingdom, and his descendants were no better. Now, I'm not going to name each atrocity that every one of his Franco-Norman successors committed, because just between Henry II's invasion of Ireland and Edward Longshank's invasion of Scotland, there are so many. Instead, I'll just mention that in the 1300s, it had gotten so bad that rebellions were brewing everywhere in England. The rebel priest John Ball was one of the many who advocated against the oppressive regime of the Franco-Norman aristocrats. And when Watt Tyler freed him from prison in 1381, the two raised an army of somewhere between 50 and 100,000 angry peasants, who joined their cause to strike down a poll tax imposed on everyone over the age of 15. Now, they were particularly incensed by the brutality of the new regime's tax collectors, the behavior of Frères Schietnius, so to speak. So, this peasant army invaded London, captured London Bridge, and the Tower, and killed the Archbishop and the Treasurer, now, unfortunately, King Richard III remembered an old trick that his predecessor, Longshanks, had used on the Scottish nobles invite your opponents to parley, but instead of actually negotiating with them, kill them. But Tyler was murdered by Richard III when he showed up to negotiate. A trick that the English and later American settlers, having learned from their oppressors, used over and over again in their land grabs in North America. And here's an example of that. Pocahontas. She was the daughter of Paramount Chief Powhatan, or Wahun Senaka, of the Senakomaka Alliance. And despite what Disney might have told you, She didn't fall in love with some dude named John that she happened upon in the woods and all of that. She was kidnapped by the English in 1609 and held captive in the English settlement Henricus. After a series of altercations between the Tsenakomaka and the English, it all culminated with a large brawl in 1614 at the Pamunkey River. At that instance... The colonists allowed Pocahontas to speak with her father, and this seemed to uh, have created grounds for a truce that lasted eight years, and this was known as the Pocahontas peace. And then she was married off to a guy named John. And even though he stated in his letter to the governor that he loved her very much, I suspect that this was another one of those frere wants-gather situations. In 1622, however, the indigenous peoples around the English settlements had become so annoyed with their constant land grabs to grow tobacco that they rose up against them again. and Powhatan attacked a colony and killed nearly a sixth of all men there and then kidnapped another 20 women. At the following peace talks, a certain leader-to-be-governor named John Pot prepared poisoned wine for the indigenous representatives at the negotiating table, and in the manner of so many other English negotiators before him, got rid of his enemy by killing them at the parley. Now, with such methods, the English lords and elite could continue their appropriation of land and take the possessions of the su- subjects. And as a side note on this John Pot. He managed to ransom some of the kidnapped women. That's nice, you'd think, until you hear what he did next. He made these women that he ransomed work off their ransom to him. And he even made them work off the debt of their deceased husbands because they couldn't complete the terms of their indentured servitude due to being dead. That's definitely another frere-wants-gather moment. And there's really been a lot of those in English history. Keep in mind that um, large swaths of the European populations who migrated elsewhere on this planet and dispossessed indigenous peoples had themselves been dispossessed in Europe. A cycle of abuse that began with aristocratic land grabs in Europe. In the 1500s, these efforts to dispossess the European working class reached new aggressive levels with Henry VIII's vagrancy laws. On June 16, 1531, he effectively created the itinerant working classes of England by kicking people off the commons. The commons that, as I mentioned before, were the lands that people in the medieval uh, period essentially just could use without anybody asking questions. Now, Henry's laws stipulated that if a person was not in wage labor or housed, they were considered a vagabond. People caught for vagabondage would be whipped the first time. The second time they would be whipped and half an ear would be cut off. While the third time they were caught, they would simply be executed. Such laws were enacted across Europe in this period people living off the land were forcibly expropriated from the soil, driven from their homes, turned into vagabonds, and then whipped, branded, and tortured. This expropriation of land was extended to the colonies where indigenous peoples around the world suffered the same and worse treatments. And that's what Powhatan and his allies were sick of. So between the 17th and 18th centuries, over 5,000 so-called Enclosure Acts were passed in England, shutting down no less than 6.8 million acres of common lands. And Powhatan wasn't the only one who got sick of it all. In 1649, Jared Winston Lee went out and occupied the old commons on St. George's Hill in Watton in Surrey with some 30 to 40 men and women. What they did there was to work the soil collectively. And as a Protestant, Winston Lee was reading the Bible and writing pamphlets criticizing the English church. He wrote, quote, In the beginning of time, God made the earth. Not one word was spoken at the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. But selfish imaginations did set up one man to teach and rule over another; those that buy and sell land and are landlords have got it either by oppression, or murder, or theft. End quote. And he joins what Tyler and fabled figures like Robin Hood and Dick Turbin as a folk hero of the English lands who fought against the closing of the commons, the appropriation of wealth by the lords, and the willful and intentional destitution of millions of people in the thousand years that the Norman colonial system has worked its dubious magic on the Western world. an anaphrodisiac magic, if you could ask me. In Scandinavia, we also have such folk heroes. From my neck of the woods, or rather heaths, in central Jutland, there are tales of Jens Lanknew, I guess he would be called John Longknife in English, who killed a royal bailiff because the bailiff had accused Longknife's mother of witchcraft. The following decade or so, John Longknife hid in the limestone cave systems in the area, and according to legend, he helped out the common folk as they were subjected to economic burdens, labor, and punishment by the lords. A Danish Robin Hood, so to speak. And it's no coincidence that such figures crop up in droves across Europe between the early 1500s and the late 1700s. It's because the European aristocracy are tightening their control with the populations on the continent at that time, exploiting their labor and shutting down the last free spaces people had available to make a living by working with the land instead of earning a wage in an industry. Shutting down the commons and making enclosures required threats and violence because people were not going to give it up easily. Scyrdnir, frers, bailiff, knows that, and that's why he ends up making such heinous threats against guerra That story is all about beating the land into submission. The spirit that in the 1200s had come to represent the Lord's rule over the land, sends his servant to force gather to do his bidding. And this is an expression of an attitude towards land management, the management of women, and the management of lower classes that had reached Scandinavia in the late Viking age and found a firm footing in the 1200s just like it did in England and elsewhere in Western Europe a little bit earlier. And our contemporary systems rest on the shoulders of that. Here's an example. In the Viking Age, an area of some 1,500 square miles in East Anglia, stretching from Lincoln in the north almost to Cambridge in the south, consisted of low-lying marshes this is where the great heathen army came in and up the river Ouse in 865. Historically known as the Fens, it was a difficult area to subject to efficient development. There were attempts to drain the Fens all the way back to the Roman times, but lacking advanced engineering, the area stayed much the same until the 17th century. As such, the Fens were an area where many of those who were expelled from the commons or lived itinerant lives in England could find refuge and live off the land with a little bit of skill and ability to work with the waters. However, in the 1630s, the 4th Earl of Bedford teamed up with some um, gentlemen adventurers of London. That would be the 17th century parlance for venture capitalists, and began serious work on draining the fens. Now, these efforts were met with massive resistance from the population in the fens. An organized resistance group called the Fen Tigers staged multiple attempts to sabotage the drainage efforts, unfortunately, to little avail. The work proceeded and eventually drained large swaths of the fence. Although the 17th century drainages did not last because the peat shrank as a result of being drained and then caused the land to sink and thus being flooded again, the introduction of coal-powered steam engines to pump water out as well as the building of massive embankments finally did the trick in the 19th century. And this displaced the people living in the fens and handed over the land to distant lords and capitalists who have since exploited the area for food production. Food that they would sell back to the people who were denied the ability to live freely off the land in the first place. People who became factory workers instead or died. A similar similar story can be told about the now non-existing but re-emerging Tulare Lake in California. As California has received massive amounts of water recently, old lakes have begun reappearing, and Tulare is one of them. The central valley of California stretches across nearly two-thirds of the state, forming a basin in the middle of the region between the Sierra Nevada and the Coast Ranges. 600,000 years ago, this area was a massive inland lake um, called Lake Corcoran by modern geologists, of course. Now, 600,000 years ago, something happened and an outlet was formed uh, for this lake in what is now uh, the San Francisco Bay. The lake drained and left a couple smaller, but still quite sizable lakes in the valley. And in the southern part of the Central Valley, in what is now called San Joaquin Valley, Tulare Lake formed. And when the Spanish colonizers showed up and gave it that name, it was the largest water reservoir west of the Mississippi. At the moment of European arrival, the area around the lake was inhabited by three Yokuts nations, the Wobol, the Chunut, and the Tachi. Anglo-American colonizers first came into the area around 1826, and after the Mexican-American War that ended in 1848, they poured in in droves. In 1858-9, to nine, the American settlers in the area exacted encompassing ethnic cleansing on the Yokuts, and those who weren't killed were expelled to the Fresno River Reservation up north. By the 1870s, there was a small population of indigenous people still living on the islands in the lake, but they were removed to make room for the settlers' cattle. In the 1880s, the marshes around the lake had been completely drained, and several of the tributary rivers to the lake had been dammed. By 1894, the lake had all but disappeared, Thanks to the draining of the marshes and the damming of the rivers. Each spring, the snow melt of four rivers would carry water down from the Sierra Nevada to the Tulare Basin and replenish the lake, but not this time. So, thanks to such gentlemen adventurers as Colonel J.G. Boswell, a cotton magnate from Georgia. The water from those rivers would instead be redirected to the cotton fields that he planted around the lake, eventually in the lake basin itself. And today, the dry lake bed is the core of the lands held by the largest private landholder in California, J.G. Boswell Company, owned by the colonel's descendants. Dubbed the King of California by journalists, Mark Ericks and Rick Wartzman in their biography of Boswell, this man did another frere on the lands of America, a hundred and something years ago, so that he could sell cotton back to the people who were displaced from the lands they once freely inhabited. And that is how the method of enclosure works. Someone sits out there on the little throne and becomes engulfed with desire for an object they see in the distance. Then they use whichever tool they have in their possession, threats, coercions, violence, to take that object into their possession. And once they can claim it for themselves, they close it off from usage for others. And those who had otherwise made use of this resource are then told by this person or group of people full of desire to dominate that they'll need to stop using it and the proof that this person presents will be in the documents written by bureaucrats and if these newly itinerant people want access to the resource they will now have to use the primary tool of the bureaucrats to get it money thank you for listening